0: Hello, everyone, and welcome again to A Moment in History. This is our 32nd interview. I'm Harrison Zyberg, and this is WCCS Podcast.
1: And if my guests would like to introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Connor Evans, and I'm the GM of WDCE, which is uh, the University of Richmond's college station.
0: Hey, just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your school?
1: Sure. Um, So we're very small. I, I believe the undergrad class is... Uh, like 3,500 to 4,000, somewhere in that range. Um, So it's very small, pretty self-contained campus. And we're not really in the city of Richmond, but we're just uh, outside basically, but uh, very pretty here. Um, And yeah, classes start next week. Um, I'm an English and journalism major and yeah, I don't know. It's, it's beautiful campus though. If you ever get to visit. Um,
0: now. So I'm a history major, and something that I'm curious with is how people will remember the year 2020, and how historians or filmmakers will portray it. So I was curious, could you tell me, just from right now, what you think you'll always remember about this year?
1: Gosh, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's so many ways you can go with that question, right? I mean, I guess for me, pers- like, I guess the personal memories I'll think about are just spending time at home and being with my dad for just long stretches. And in some ways, it's you know, good to have that family time and good for me to be with my dad. And then I think nationally, um, you're gonna think about you know, the racial justice protests and that whole movement that's happened and that so many Americans have been, and so many people in the world, frankly. I mean, there were protests in Berlin and all over the place. Um, and then obviously, I mean, Coronavirus is probably, if you were to pick one single thing that's affected the world the most, that's, you know, that's what this year is going to be about. And frankly, it's going to be what next year is about. Um, But those are the two biggest things. I mean, it's an election year, but in some ways that feels a lot smaller to me than coronavirus and, you know, the racial justice movement right now, the Black Lives Matter movement. So
0: now, do you think that's what um, historians are going to focus on? That those are the issues they'll write books about and like the points they'll look at?
1: Yeah, I I, I think it's <laughs> unavoidable for this year. I mean, I'm sure there will be, you know, sort of clever ways of looking into those things. I mean, there's so many aspects that COVID um, has affected for america and and the world i mean you can look at the economic challenges of it you can look at how it's affected the environment even because people thought at first that this would you know be helpful because there'd be maybe less pollution and then maybe that stuff snaps back and then you know I, i don't know these things are so interconnected but i i can't really imagine someone you know my my kid one day reading a book about 2020 and those not being the two biggest you know events um that we're talking about. Uh, And certainly there's more going on, but those are the two sort of, you know, that's what everything's revolving around right now. So I guess to go off of those two things, COVID and said,
0: black lives matter um, in your own hometown or where you're from or where you were spending quarantine um, one, how did people treat COVID? Do they take it seriously or was it a debate on how people treated it? And then, also, were there any Black Lives Matter protests in where you lived?
1: Yeah, great question. I think it's interesting. Hopefully, for the listeners, for me, because I'm I'm from Georgia. Um, I actually live just north of Atlanta, so in the suburbs, um, which is kind of an interesting place to be, I think, because Atlanta certainly had a huge movement, and I I had friends um, who participated in the protests, and I I didn't because, truthfully, I was just too concerned about the virus. My dad is. On the older side, but that you know that aside, there were protests even in my my towns. Uh, you know, the cities surrounding Atlanta, where the population is you know not quite as diverse as the actual city. And it was interesting to see. I mean, you would go to major intersections. There would be people pro- protesting with signs, and I even saw more disheartening things. Like I was driving home one night. Um, my my dad's place and there was a, a a black man walking on the sidewalk and a car kind of pulled up next to him and rolled down the window and, and said something to him and the, i mean the guy was you know minding his own business and you, ju- you they're just these little interactions where you can tell he just you know um not everyone was on the same side we'll say uh you know you could be walking home one night and an asshole could just you know, try to ruin your night, right? Uh, who, who doesn't kind of believe in the Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter movement or believes whatever he believes. But that part was interesting for me to see in my hometown, that there was as much support as there was and in, as much protest mm-hmm. as there was. Um, I mean, I don't know how specifically you want me to get into it, but as far as COVID goes, Georgia is not the most strict Place for these policies. I mean, if you go into a grocery store at different points during quarantine, you might see ninety percent of people with masks on. You might Mm. see, you know, a third of the people with with masks on. Frankly, and lately it was, you know, a little bit more lax as far as how people were treating it. Um, At least where I was in Roswell, Alpharetta, that area. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I do think it's a regional thing, and. You know, people have their ideas about individual freedom. I think more in the South, they feel that stronger just culturally than other parts of the country. Um, I think that's fair to say. And I, you know, I've lived there my whole life. Um, so that's kind of what I saw. I mean, certainly I knew people who took it very seriously. And there were some people that said, hey, I want to be able to do what I normally do and stick to some semblance of my routine um, and hopefully not hurt anybody in the process. So.
0: I guess to ask, um, to go back to Black Lives Matter, did you notice that there was, well, you mentioned a tension that there were obviously two sides where you were from, and I guess fairly vocal sides. Um, Was that tension there before the resurgence that we saw in these last few months, and it just resurfaced, or was this a new experience
1: of you witnessing it? That's a good question. So I guess what I would say is that um, um, a lot of people where I live, and I'll just speak for, you know, my area, I guess, and my experience is that people want to sort of de-emphasize how much race affects people's lives and how much race um, impacts what is, you know, the shape of someone's life, you know, how much it impacts their involvement with the criminal justice system, how much it'll impact their future employment. Um, There's an attitude that people should, you know, have sort of the work ethic um, to overcome and certainly requires a great deal of work. And, you know, people work hard across, uh, you know, any racial boundaries. But I think it was a new thing for a lot of people to really realize that this stuff still happens and to the degree that, um, you know, Black people and people of color are Targets of the police and unfairly treated in our criminal justice system. And it led it led to me having more conversations with people in my life about it. And it I mean, it led to me trying to educate myself more, but just my neighbors, you know, I I live in a community that is near a country club, and I have neighbors that um, you know, have different ideas from me about this stuff. And I mm-hmm. think that's, that's okay. and It allows us to talk about it in a way that we're not just yelling at each other. But mm-hmm. um, it certainly inspires those conversations. I hope that's not too vague. Does that make sense that like, there's, yeah. uh, I guess the main point is just what I said at the beginning that mm-hmm. most of the time, people just don't want to think about how race impacts uh, these things, mm-hmm. because they see themselves as working hard and earning what they have. And that might be true. But White privilege is real, and also the ways that uh, people of color are mistreated in this country is a really, really real thing. So, I guess we always
0: hear that um, difficult conversations need to happen, but some we usually don't always witness the conversations, or maybe it's just said that they need to happen and they don't always. So, and you mentioned that you had some of these conversations. If you're willing to share, what did those conversations actually look like? What did you discuss, or how do people take being confronted with? ideas that probably change
1: their worldview or challenge it at least. Yeah. So I guess, um, I I have this neighbor, uh, named Roger, um, (laughs) and you know, he's an older white guy. He's a, he's a war veteran. He has been very successful. You know, he obviously lives in a nice area and to be clear here, like, I'm very fortunate. I live in a nice area at home. Um, and he likes to kind of pick my brain about this stuff sometimes. And he'll, you know, he'll, um, express, kind of what I said, like his grandparents were Irish and Irish people were certainly persecuted in this country in the early, you know, part of the 20th century. Um, and so it's hard for him to see that and think, well, my grandparents were persecuted and they overcame and they were small business owners and they, were, they became successful. They, over, they overcame that um, prejudice. It's hard for him to then accept, well, it's a, it's very different for black people. I think, you know, even then, even, you know, now comparing to the, I I don't know, you don't want to necessarily make those comparisons, but it's just different. It's different for black people and people of color, certainly now in America. And, you know, some people do over, I mean, some people have, you know, success and uh, they're able to thrive, but the way that Um, we have put institutions in place in this country makes it much more unlikely uh, for black people and people of color to find jobs that pay the same as white people to um, be again impacted by policing and criminal justice in the same way Um, I mean housing and rent it it goes all the way down I mean I don't know everything but I've tried to read you know I've tried to be educated about some of this stuff and it's just hard for people like him who have this family history and they, they've seen it firsthand. Like, I can work hard and be successful, but America is not a meritocracy in the way that we are taught when we are children. It, it, it just isn't. And we're seeing that now because, you know, I'm, a white person is not as likely to be killed by police or, or have um, excessive force put upon them by police. It, you know, things... Um, it, it, you know, it affects all sorts of institutions, but he does listen. I mean, some of these people, if you approach them in the right way, they will at least listen. I don't know if I'm going to change his mind uh, in a couple of conversations, but uh, hopefully more people are at least listening to the other side.
0: I was wondering, so you mentioned you were trying to educate yourself further. and I think a lot of people have or they've mentioned in these interviews trying to educate themselves. So how did you specifically try to like what books did you read or articles or movies or doc? Like how did you try to educate yourself?
1: Yeah. So um, I will say generally, I think one thing that's good to do is don't like assign yourself homework if you can, because if you're just going to fight through a book um, that you don't enjoy, then you're probably not going to get much out of it. So try to find stuff that interests you. Like one thing that I did is I watched a documentary because I, you know, like documentaries. I watched um, I Am Not Your Negro, which is about James Baldwin and his relationships with, you know, other civil rights leaders and just kind of, you know, a lot of his um, uh, thoughts on all this stuff that's incredibly relevant now. Um, I also read a book called The End of Policing to try to understand what the abolition movement is really all about, because I think a lot of people have never even heard of that idea. Right, of abolishing the police. And uh, that was like sort of enjoyable to, well, I mean, not enjoyable, but it was sort of comprehensible and easy to read in that way. Um, and I think, you know, I think people should seek out things like the 13th documentary, maybe the new Jim Crow, which I, I haven't read yet. But um, again, I don't know if it's productive for people to slog through something. Instead, maybe try to find avenues of educating yourself that aren't um so te- cuz i don't know it shouldn't feel like uh so burdensome right um it should in some ways be you know it should you should learn something and feel like you're um able to apply whatever you're learning to your life um you know being able to donate to the right places being able to volunteer in the right places being able to have conversations a little bit more Effectively. Uh, and again, it, it, this is about action. I mean, it's about holding your leaders and your community accountable. Um, and so I also don't think that you have to read everything in the world before protesting or before mm-hmm. committing to action because otherwise I think people get a little paralyzed because you can't know everything, but you can act mm-hmm. and you can continue to learn through trying to act and do better um i'll if you if you don't mind me sort of Mm -hmm. talking at length here one example for me was um gosh and i'm blanking on the name of the organization but there was do you know who d ray is um he's a a leader in in police reform Mm -hmm. gosh do you know who i'm talking about or no i think the name sounds familiar but i can't remember his organization but essentially his organization is about reform and sort of policy changes, you know, uh, and some of them are better than others, but in general, they don't exactly get to the heart of the issue. And so I, at the beginning of, of learning about this stuff, I was like, oh, this looks great. This is policy that can be enacted that maybe can help save lives. But then as I read more about this stuff and had more conversations with friends about it, I realized, well, actually, this is not the most effective thing. And I'd already donated money, but, you know, that's okay. You're going to learn. You're, it, it's, I, um, and I feel differently now about his organization than I did at first. But, um, you know, again, you don't, you don't want to be paralyzed to not act. Uh, you want to try to help wherever you can in your, in your own community. So um, I've screwed up too, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But I'm just trying to learn mm-hmm. um, all the time and listen to the right voices. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I think so. Obviously, uh, I've interviewed people from different schools, or I've lived across the United States now, at least in the last few interviews. And I've been lucky in that because people have been willing to. But I haven't thought to ask this question, and I probably should have. Is that so? I know what it's like to live in New England because I've lived there my entire life. And you said you've lived in the South, or you live in Georgia now.
1: Yeah, my and whole I, life.
0: Yeah. I was curious. What? What would you want to? tell someone about what it's like to live in Georgia? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions or different perceptions of how New Englanders view life in the South, and I'm sure how Southerners view life in New England or we view in the West. I'm just curious, what would you wanna tell people about what it's like to actually live where you live?
1: I think what I would tell someone is that when you are in Metro Atlanta, which is where I'm from, it's a much more diverse place than people think. I mean, my high school, Centennial High School in Roswell um, was either majority, minority, or, or very close to that. And part of the reason for that is because they set the zones in certain ways where uh, other high schools near me were more wealthy and more white. And you know, that, that stuff really does happen. But also, it is a diverse place. I mean, there's a lot of Indian folks. There's a, lot, you know, there's a whole, there's basically a Koreatown In Metro Atlanta and in Buford, there's different pockets of different cultures and and, um, groups of people, and it's real. I mean, maybe people outside of Georgia don't realize that, and they just think of Atlanta as being a a, you know a culturally diverse place and certainly relevant um, you know nationally for those reasons. But even the surrounding areas, these are not just white, uh, you know, conservative places. They are conservative in some, you know, probably majority, but it is diverse. Um, you're going to meet a lot of different people in these places. I, I guess if I that would be the one thing. Um, I don't know. It's a hard question. I guess I don't know what the assumptions are everywhere, but that would be one thing I'd point to is that Georgia has really uh, change demographics over my lifetime, even. So, I was curious. So, it's been,
0: if anything, it's been an eventful year. And I don't know if you pay attention to the news, but every few days, <laughs> I guess I try not to every day, but every every few days there is something. And usually, if you don't watch the news, it will show up on social media or different posts. I was curious, just in the last two week time frame, because it's August twenty first now. So, in a roughly two week time frame what do you think the biggest news story has
1: been or the most important? Um, in the past few weeks, well, may, I mean, maybe the VP nomination. That seems kind of lame to point to. Actually, you know what mine is? I'll, I'll tell you this one. Hopefully someone else hasn't said this. I think Apple doubling its valuation in the pandemic is something that people should take note of. And more broadly, not just Apple, but giant corporations, um, largely tech organizations, are amassing wealth right now. And I think people need to think hard about how they feel about that. Um, I think a lot of people would say that this is just a successful company doing well and that they deserve whatever wealth they're able to accrue. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think people should be thinking critically about what that means for small businesses across the country you know, what, is, what does it mean that Amazon is as powerful as, as it is? What does it mean? Uh, what is how they how they treat their workers? What does that mean for labor in this country? Um, uh, you know, the post office is, is also big news, but I, I do think we should think about how much wealth is being accumulated by a small group of people and a small group of companies and I think people should decide what they think um, America should, you know, if America benefits from that or, or not, you know, I, it's complicated, but I I think it's absolutely worth discussing. And um, I think it's something that maybe doesn't get talked about enough all the time. So that would, that would be mine.
0: Yeah. So what do you think the reasoning, uh, or why do you think people don't talk about this enough? Cause I think early in, on the pandemic, we heard different things about Amazon's practices towards workers. And then truth, yeah, I haven't really heard. Sometimes I see a news alert where it's like, oh, Jeff Bezos has four more, four billion dollars more now than yesterday. Right. How
1: do you think that's not making the headline news that you think it should be? So I guess what I would say about it is people around where I live, at least, you know, people like my, my dad or my neighbors, they would tell you that these companies employ lots of people and they do. They, they employ lots of people. And so they are, they are good for workers because of that. Now, it comes at the expense of small businesses. It, it just does. I mean, Amazon in particular certainly comes at the expense of small businesses. Um, who have to work through Amazon because um, they have so much infrastructure. And I think part of the reason it's, it's hard to talk about is because it is so thorny uh, an issue. I mean, it's not as simple. As, well, I guess none of these. I'm trying to think of an issue that would be simple, um, and maybe there are none. But, you know, economics is hard. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's also something that I don't think the left in particular totally agrees upon you know um it's a popular saying now it's to say that you're socially liberal but fiscally conservative and that's another thing that i think we should really be thinking critically about because when a government wants to be fiscally conservative who is that ultimately benefiting um, and what you know not that being fiscally conservative in a vacuum is bad but what have those policies led to um what does it meant for poor communities and communities of color that get left behind what does it mean for their schools you know um but Mm -hmm. for businesses it's hard because we we like the convenience and frankly the sexiness of owning these technologies or receiving an amazon package Mm -hmm. and i don't know everything again like i'm not Mm going to change the world talking about this stuff but um i hope we don't forget about the consolidation that is going to happen uh, in the corporate world, because of the the economic downturn right now, there's going to be a lot of companies that get bought or that go under, and it's really sad. And I think one thing we can all agree on is that we need strong small businesses in America. I, I think that goes across the political spectrum. Hopefully,
0: now um, obviously, so we're both involved with radio, and in normal live radio, it, you go in for an hour. You do a live show and it's done and it's gone. This is obviously a podcast, so it's going to be up for a while. Yeah. Which means that potentially someone 10 years from now could listen to this, or you, even you could listen to this 10 years from now and see what you said as a college student. If you could send yourself a message right now, <laughs> 10 years or however many years in the future, what would it be?
1: Oh, man. Gosh, you, you know, I should think about this stuff more probably. But um, I think what I would say is that I hope that whatever I'm doing uh, has a focus on helping others. Um, you know, I am a Christian myself. I think, I think altruism is really important for anyone in their life. And it's, uh, I, I think in a lot of ways it should be the center of my life. And I hope that um, whatever I'm doing professionally or socially has a focus on helping others. So I guess if I'm listening to this 10 to 15 years from now, uh, I hope that rings true. And I hope that I've been able to center myself around those sorts of things, um, which is hard because, you know, I have a buddy and again, sorry, t- stop me if I'm talking too much, but I have a buddy who's probably the most leftist person I know who's working for Morgan Stanley. And that's okay. It's okay to work for whatever company. Um, but, you know, we don't always have the luxury of choosing what jobs we have because there's a limited amount of opportunities out there for any given person. But even if your job is not a nonprofit or something, I think there's still things we can always be doing to help those who might need our help. So um, I think that's a good thing to center yourself around.
0: this may be a similar question, but let's say you could send a message to those uh, historians that will be writing the books about this year. Would you send the same type of message or would you wanna say something different?
1: I would hope that whatever history is written about this time um, has a focus on, on real people and, you know, little guys, I guess, in a way, rather than too much focus on the sort of palace intrigue of our leadership. Um, I think the leadership has been a really important aspect in a quite a dysfunctional and disappointing and at times really upsetting part of how America has treated this pandemic. Um, but I just hope that's not the only thing we talk about. you know. I, I hope that Trump or whatever other administration officials, I hope that they're not the center of the conversation. Um, I hope we center it around the real sort of grassroots movements that are happening um, for all these things. So that, that's what I would say.
0: Now, when we look back in history or we study history, you see uh, moments referred to as like a generational moment. Um, So it can be sometimes wars or traumatic events that happen that really affects people moving forward. I was curious, do you think that this year will be a generational moment for people around our age? And if so, what from this year do you think you're going to take with you moving forward?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, yes. Uh, (laughs) You know, well, it's interesting, right, Harrison, because 2016 was also a generational moment. Um, frankly, I mean, that election was incredibly unusual for all sorts of reasons. Um, and this is even bigger than that. I, I, to me, um, in that seems obvious, but I guess just answering your question, I'll say yes. And gosh, what was the other part of it? What will I take with me? Um, you know, there's this book I love and I'm guessing it got read a little bit more around the pandemic called station 11. And it's a novel, essentially, where the world, you know, collapses due to a a pandemic. And it was written in 2014 or 15. But the book is not really about the apocalypse and how the world ends. It is really about years later and what what we're grateful for, what we hold on to, what are the beautiful things that will not help you survive that people still want. There's a traveling um, group, a troop of people in this novel who perform Shakespeare this is 20 years after the apocalyptic event and it centers around this group of people who go from town to town and they put on King Lear or Macbeth or Midsummer Night's Dream and I've, I always thought that book and I hope this isn't too cheesy for the audience listening but I, I really think there's something profound about this book by Emily St. John Mandel by the way um and i i I think people should you know read stuff like that or or you know remember um what we're grateful for. I think I will take away just you know I visited my girlfriend a couple of times and she lives in St Louis, and I drove you know nine hours to see her for a weekend and you know you just realize how special a lot of those connections are and how special it is to be with people physically to be with your friends physically now that I'm back on campus and um, I hope that what I take with me is just not taking those types of things for granted um, and realizing that we need stuff besides just what we need to survive Um, so I guess that's a roundabout answer but I I hope that I stay grateful for all the really special things that, that I have. So, yeah.
0: Now to ask one of my favorite questions, um, when, or when do you think you'll be comfortable with shaking a stranger's hand again, if you're not already?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think when, when a vaccine is created and when it's been disseminated to, I don't know what percentage of people, but a large part of the, U.S. population. Um, I don't know if you feel this way, Harrison, but I will watch movies now, and this happened more at the beginning of quarantine. But when I see people clasp hands in a movie, I like wince a little, or there's these little physical. T- I do. I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind of funny, but it's also kind of sad to me. But um, we've already kind of been conditioned to, you know, wince at some of that stuff, uh, cringe a little bit. Um, and uh, I, you know, certainly my close friends, I, you know, I'm sort of, I, you know, will touch them physical, I'll hug, I'll, you know, shake hands, whatever. But as far as a stranger, and it, when I say that, I hope people um, are smart about that. And I, I think it's okay to have a close group of friends that you can be with, but as far as a stranger or someone I only kind of know, I, I don't know, maybe a year, maybe a couple of years. Um, I don't, I, I think not longer than that, but mm-hmm. several months down the line. Yeah. I know um, for me, I,
0: so the first time I had to shake a stranger's hand was my doctor who I had to see like a few weeks ago. And I was like, he had a glove on and it was fine. Cause I think if your doctor is shaking your hand, it's probably okay. But it was very, it was weird when I saw it. And I definitely paused for like, an abnormally long amount of time before taking it yeah it was was a weird moment yeah Yeah. um so to move on we're going to move to i guess we'll ask some quick questions and we'll move on to the second half which is shorter um but just some quick questions what has been some movies or tv shows or books you've read uh or music you've listened to during quarantine so we focus on a lot of Heavy things of serious things. What are some of the things that
1: you use to get through it? No, it's a wonderful question. I mean, it's one of my conversation starters with most people I talk to now, right? Um, What have you been watching? Uh, I don't know what to hit on first. I've tried to do all all of that. Um, I'm an English major. I did English, or I did research with our English department here this summer, and I actually read. Uh, I hope this isn't too bleak for people, but I read most of the works of Cormac McCarthy, who people might know, you know, he, read, he wrote The Road, which was made into a movie and No Country for Old Men, which is, you know, an Oscar-winning movie. Um, and so I did research kind of analyzing Christianity throughout his works, and I, I really enjoyed that. I, I really think I got a lot out of it personally. Um, so those were some of the best books I read. And for movies... Um, I tried to watch some some older stuff uh, this quarantine. I mean, that, you know nothing new is coming out anyways for movies. And I'm, I'm more of a movie person than a show person, typically. Uh, gosh, what's the best movie? You know what I watched? I watched Network. Have you seen Network, Harrison? So it's this 1976, I think, mid-'70s movie. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, Robert Duvall and Faye Dunaway and these other just awesome actors. And it is... Uh, you know, about a, a network TV station who has a news anchor who starts going crazy on air, you know, starts kind of losing his mind about the state of the world with a lot of similarities of what's going on today. And they sort of, use him for ratings and exploit him and it it goes from there and uh i just think every actor is batting or throwing 100 miles an hour in this movie i I think it's incredibly entertaining watching it today directed by i believe sydney lumet who's done a lot of exceptional work um so if i had to pick just one to talk about right now it would be that one but i've watched a bunch of kurosawa movies you know some samurai stuff and other stuff by him and uh just tried to bounce around I like Cary Grant movies a lot um he's probably my maybe my favorite just movie star which is I hope that's not too pretentious or something but uh I love Cary Grant I think he's so funny I think he's one of the best physical comedians on screen so
0: do you have a um a moment that you can look at and be like oh this was a positive like the a positive highlight of the time you you spent during quarantine
1: I I would have to point to when I visited my girlfriend uh, near St. Louis again, um, she, I I mean, I think having her through this, I was really lucky because, you know, just being able to call her anytime and uh, just catch up with her and talk about not the world all the time and just the goings on of our our day. And, uh, you know, obviously visiting her and being able to just spend time with her and her family was really special. So that's probably the the biggest positive. But I, you know, I also just enjoy the quieter moments watching stuff with my dad. We burned through most of better call Saul, my dad and I, before he uh, kind of couldn't take it anymore because it's too stressful a show for him. But yeah, I, I think those are some positives um, for me. Yeah. Th- those would probably be the the biggest ones. So I, It's tough, long distance is tough. I think a lot of people experienced that in quarantine, but um, the time we spent together was great.
0: So obviously we were able to connect and do this interview through our radio stations. So I was curious if you just want to take the opportunity to plug your radio station, talk (laughs) about your own role in
1: it. Yeah, sure, so again, WDCE 90.1 FM uh, here in Richmond, and you can find us on TuneIn. Um Searching those call letters, um, gosh, I don't know what to say about it. We're a student run station. We are very small. we don't have uh, the resources that a lot of other stations we talk to have, but that's okay, and we make it work, and we are twenty four seven I was the music director for a couple of years here. I've been involved since my freshman year I'm a senior now, and I just you know got the gig as general manager, so hopefully we can just kind of keep chugging along and be safe with how we conduct things this fall, certainly. And maybe even in the spring, um, if we have to do those same protocols, but I've really gotten a lot out of it. I, I hope you have too, Harrison. I, are you the GM there? The VP? Yeah. So we're, uh, we have that, I'm the vice president, which is like
0: station manager. So I've been doing like helping people figure out how to do shows, advertise and things like that.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love it. Um, one, one thing I have fun doing every year is, you know, the Grammys kind of suck. You might agree Harrison. So we do our own. where literally just my group of friends. We, uh, I send out a form and we all vote on the different genres and album of the year, song of the year, best new artist, all that stuff. And I, I love putting that show on and just having people in the station. I won't be able to have state people in the station this fall, but I've I've made friends through it, and it's just a it's a fun creative outlet. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly, you're making the most of it. I think, Harrison. We don't have any podcasts at our station, mm-hmm. but I I think this is a, a cool project. So I hope you've enjoyed talking to people and stuff.
0: It's been interesting. The first most of the first ones I did wasn't through radio; it was just people I knew from high school or knew in college, or people recommend other people. And then it was only in the last... How did allowed, find us, by the way? How did I find you? Yeah. Um, I either randomly... So I started to search up just different radio stations, college radio stations, and follow them on Instagram. And then I would message them, be like, hey, we're looking to collaborate. Do you, want to, do you want to do anything? So at this point, I've probably messaged, like, 200 plus.
1: Wow. And, like... That's awesome.
0: 30-ish, 40 have gotten back. And to varying degrees of, like, yeah, let's do it. To, like, no but the ones that have, they've always been really great. i have like around to all these different interviews. So I, how I found your station specifically probably was in a random scroll of looking through other college radio station, Instagram followers or no. popped up, or I looked up like Virginia radio station college. And then your call letters just came up.
1: Oh, so yeah,
0: it's, it's been, uh, yeah, it's been a, a good opportunity to, get to talk to people because I didn't, At the start, so I'm a junior, and when I started doing radio, I definitely didn't think I'd be doing this. I don't think anyone thought anything this was going to happen. Yeah, but it's been something I'm really grateful for because I've getting to talk to someone from Georgia, and I've talked to to people from uh, Missouri and Kansas and Vermont and uh, Connecticut. So it's been a very worthwhile experience.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, um, again, we're a smaller station. We don't have. uh you know, a ton of, but it's cool that you reached out to us and thought of us. And by the way, for the people at home, I'm in journalism and it might sound easy to copy and paste and just reach out to 200 stations, but that is uh, more work than it sounds like. So it, it, uh, definitely, be, it definitely was more work than I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. It sounds, it sounds simple, but it takes, it takes a lot of time and also just keeping up with all the responses. So, yeah.
0: So. You mentioned how you're back on campus now, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm going to ask you a question to go back. At this point, a long time. Do you remember the first moment you learned you would be moving from an on-campus normal college experience to a remote college experience?
1: Yeah, I do, because, and this happened to several schools where I was on spring break, so my spring break this year, you know, the second or third week of March, whatever that was, um, I went to my buddy's place in Maryland. We spent like some time in DC on the way there from Richmond. So we went to DC, which is a little scary when you think about it now, but we were in museums and stuff, walking around, stayed at his place in Maryland for a couple days with his girlfriend. And that was really fun. I came back to Richmond and uh, via the train and uh, I think I had one I forget if it was the same night I came back or maybe the next night and it was the NBA season got canceled and it was the night that Tom Hanks tested positive, which for some reason is a flashbulb night. But uh, yeah, the NBA season got canceled and they also told us, Hey, if you're on campus leave. And they actually said, if you're on spring break somewhere, if you can stay there, uh, so I was fortunate that I was on campus and that my my girlfriend who I was with she has a car, I don't have a car on campus. And so she actually drove with me back to Georgia and then later drove to uh, her home outside of St. Louis. But, yeah, I, I, I remember it. I remember um, just that sequence of events that I described, the NBA, Tom Hanks, and then Richmond. so
0: did or how did online classes look like? Because I haven't spoken to a journalism major before. So I'm curious how the transition looked like for you.
1: <laughs> so it's a little I mean, I was in a few different classes, but the one that was the weirdest was visual journalism. Uh because how they split it up is that the first half of the semester before spring break, you do still photo. And we we turned in our cameras and then and we get sent home and we were supposed to get video cameras, but we obviously didn't. So we had to just sort of shoot with our iPhones or whatever people had at home, which, you know, uh, is not the most productive way of learning how to shoot video or learning. Well, I mean, you know, it's useful. I mean, you you get to do the basics of editing and all that, but it was weird. I mean, kids who weren't used to editing video were probably up a creek. I was fortunate because, I mean, I've edited video in a few different programs before, but that was probably the weirdest one. And also just finding stories, because I was in this practicum class where the whole class is just you write for publications, largely the school newspaper, but you can also write uh, and pitch to, you know, local newspapers, magazines, etc. And once you get sent home, it's just, it's hard to find stories. Um, I mean, I still did do some reporting from home. But, you know, there's, one thing to talk about, which is COVID, at that point, and because uh, you know the racial justice movement wasn't really in full swing yet, and it was just weird. It's like, what am I supposed to write about? Uh, what else is happening that people care about? Because I mean, that first month, you remember, I mean, there was nothing else to read about. You had to just kind of turn it off uh, to not engage with it. So it was being being a journalism major was a little weird for those reasons. But I don't know. I mean finished up uh you get the grades and you just try to adapt so
0: do you think that experience will help you later on if you do go into journalism professionally or do you think it actually being taken away from the school being put on remote took away from the education you're trying to get
1: i mean it took away a little bit it does i'm not going to pretend it doesn't but um I do think it's important to go through stuff like that where you have to adapt. I mean, I've worked for my local newspaper at home a couple summers, um, not this summer, but the past two. And that was great experience because you know, you have to make deadlines, you have to go to city council meetings. Um, and this was a different kind of adversity, right? You have to just call people and learn how to be you also have to learn how to be productive at home, which you haven't had to do it since high school and you have to learn how to do it without being able to go anywhere. I mean, I like working, you know, I guess it's, it's silly, but I like, you know, people like to go to coffee shops. I do too. And, uh, at school, I like to go to the library and it's, you have to just train your body and mind to still be productive in these places. Um, so that was probably the hardest part. And I do think that's a good thing to learn, but I don't I don't think it was a, you know, the same education that I would have gotten, to be honest. But that's okay. I mean, it's no one's fault, but it's just reality.
0: Now, what did a um, or what I I think people will be curious as to what a typical day like looked like for people who live during quarantine. So I was curious, what did a typical day look like for
1: you? Um, I, so one of the things I figured out was important for me, and I, I, I think it's important probably for a lot of people, is to wake up early. Um, you're, you know, especially when I was still taking classes, it's hard to get in the mode of doing your work. For me, if I if I don't wake up early and kind of get my coffee and, and get to it and try to be productive between those hours of, you know, 830 a.m. and, and 3 p.m. Um, cause after that, I mean, you know, your brain's kind of fried, uh, at least for me. Um, and I guess people work late at night, but I think, yeah, just having that routine. So I like to wake up early. I like to have lunch at around the same time. You know, I would usually eat at like 1230. Um, and my summer, once I was doing research, I would just read all day. I mean, I was reading Cormac McCarthy novels and I was taking notes on them. And I was watching the film adaptations. And then once I was done with my work for the day, I would, uh, I, got, I cooked more than I ever have. I'm not a great cook, but I can cook a couple things now, you know, uh, some fried rice and some Korean style beef for a couple things I learned. Carbonara, if you're a fan, Harrison. But uh, yeah, I mean, other than that, I like I liked to call people. I like to call my friends. I, I like to talk on the phone. So that was something that helped me a lot was just um, if I was bored and I felt unmotivated, I would just kind of call my, one of my friends and try to catch up because I, I think that is important to keep up with. And it's hard. I, I think it's hard to keep up with people, even in quarantine. But that's something I, I really enjoyed. Um, besides watching movies and listening. Mm-hmm. By the way, I didn't talk about music at all, which we don't have to circle back to unless you want to. That's, but.
0: Anything you want to say is the right thing to say. That's what I always <laughs> Go say.
1: listen to the Young Jesus album. That's the one. That's the one from this summer that everybody should listen to. That's all I'll say. So,
0: so you're the first person I've spoken to or interviewed so far that is back on campus and moved in. I've oh. spoken to people before reopening plans were out. I've spoken to them. As we got in close here, and really, I was speaking to people last week. But this is a week people are going back on campus. Yeah. So, what is it like to be back there? Are you nervous at all that things are going to shut down again, or how people are going to act? Just what are you been? If you've only really been there a day or two, but it's yeah. what have been your experiences so far?
1: So, I am nervous um, <laughs> that things. Oh, sorry, you cut out for a second there. But uh, I am nervous that things could shut down. But I, I think you just got to make the most of it. I mean, I'm going to keep my network of friends small. I mean, I'm very close with my two sweet mates. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be with my girlfriend. I, I just will. But, you know, walking around campus, most people, you know, pretty, I, I, everyone is wearing a mask. But, you know, it's tough for freshmen. And I don't, I don't want to scold freshmen. I think there's a tendency to want to say the freshmen are going to ruin this for people. But I think we should have some empathy here because, I mean, if you're a freshman coming to school, even during a pandemic, you're just going to want to be with people. You're going to you're trying to make friends. I mean, this is like before classes start is when I was a freshman, I made a bunch of friends during that time that I still have today. It's a crucial part of the college experience is that like week or whatever you have as a freshman. And I hope that nobody has parties. I hope it doesn't look like that. but. Um, I try to be careful about being too sort of just righteously angry with people who want to be with each other. And hopefully they're doing it in a safe way and they're distanced and they they have masks on. But I I guess I don't want to be the type of person who is sort of performatively or or righteously um, upset. But I I really hope it works, man. I really hope I get to be here Mm -hmm. through uh, you know, we're going to be sent back Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, I hope no one gets sick or not a lot. I mean, we've had 11 positive tests out of 1200 so far, which I think is pretty good, right? I mean, that's a pretty good number. Um, I, you know, I just hope that people don't get sick. And I hope that if they do test positive, that it, it doesn't, um, you know, really hit them too hard. I mean, that's the biggest concern, right? It's just that people are are healthy and there's no long term effects. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna try to stay stay safe, but I am nervous. You have to be.
0: How did your um, How is your school handling
1: positive tests? So we have a bunch of isolation areas. I think there's a few hundred. I think there's more than three hundred isolation rooms um, for people who do test positive. And you know, if you test positive, you're supposed to say, okay, I was wi- I was in close proximity of these people. Maybe it's roommates. Maybe it's a couple other friends. And they're supposed to get tested. And uh, we all got tested when we got to campus, like I said. And I'm awaiting my results still, actually. So I should have my result in the next 24 hours, essentially. Uh, but, you know, the dining hall looks very different. You're not touching anything. All this food is served to you. You tell them what to do. Um, and, you know, they have the lines spaced out and all those things. But... Uh, You know, it it comes down to a combination of the policies and also personal choice. And uh, I think Richmond is uniquely equipped to handle this because we are small and contained. And frankly, we have a lot of money. We have a huge endowment. And we have resources available that not every school would have to accommodate for some of this stuff. So, you know, UNC, they just went fully virtual. NC State did too. I Think You Are is a different school from those, but you have to be nervous. So,
0: Um, Are all
1: your classes, are they going to be all in person
0: or are they going to be a hybrid format?
1: Yeah, so it's hybrid for us. I'm taking four and only one of mine is in person. I know people who have all their classes in person, which is more of a science people thing Um, because, you know, you have labs and that's that's tough. But I'm in English and and journalism uh, and religious studies person. So that's a little bit easier to handle over Zoom. So that's the decision my uh, professors made, yeah.
0: Now, so at my school, Whedon, they gave every student the option to um, commute, go remote, or to live back on campus. I was curious, did your school do something similar? And if so, why did you choose to come back instead of staying remote?
1: Yeah, I think everybody had the option to stay remote. In fact, my, I know someone whose roommate who uh, just decided they're going to stay off campus. So everybody has that option, um, which I I think you have to do if you're in school. Uh, and I, I wanted to be on campus cause I, I have friends here and I'm a senior and you know, my roommate is from California near Sacramento and frankly, this is the last time I'm going to get to spend much time with him in person, maybe until we get married. That's just how these things work, right? When you leave college and I'm in Georgia, my other suite mate is from Orlando, Florida. Uh, Like I said, my girlfriend lives in St. Louis. So this is it. Um, And I'm going to really try to cherish whatever time I have with these people. And again, keep my network small, be smart and safe. But I do want to spend time with my close friends that I've made. And that's why I wanted to be on, on campus. So.
0: Now I like to give the opportunity to, to say, is there anything we haven't talked about um, or covered that you really want to before we uh, finish up?
1: Um, I think that's <laughs> most of what I had for you, unless mm-hmm. you have any other questions. I, again, as far as music, cause I, I should touch on it a little bit, cause that's what we do at our radio mm-hmm. station. We don't have a lot of talk shows. Um, I love the young Jesus album. It just came out. People, please listen to it. I think those guys are really doing something kind of novel in indie rock and fusing a lot of free jazz and modest mouse and built to spill. And, uh, again, very, um, you know, sun raw, you can hear in their stuff like Zappa. I, I think they're awesome. Listen to them. um, and that's, that's all I got, man. I appreciate you uh, thinking, of, uh, thinking of WDC again. I hope cool. I was entertaining for all the listeners. So,
0: so actually, we have two more questions. I, I, I phrased that incorrectly before, and I apologize. I <laughs> know. No, these, no. the, these are the only two questions that I've asked everyone, so I, I have to ask you. But one is just, what do you think the next steps are? And that can either be the next steps for you, your family, your school community, however way you want to interpret it or apply that to, but just what do you think the next step should be?
1: Um, I guess I'm a little confused. Like, what do I want to do in relation to the pandemic? can interpret that, like, um, moving forward as you go through 2020 and beyond, just
0: what do you think the steps people should take are? It can be in relation to the pandemic or Black Lives Matter or any other issues, like you said, with Amazon yeah
1: i mean um i think the most important thing if people want to commit to activism um is focus on the local you know and i'm not the first person to say that but i think localizing issues is really crucial because it makes them feel just a little bit more manageable Um, you can actually materially help in your local community you really can I believe I, I do believe that. Um, you know, one thing my dad wants to do. He's thinking about retirement, and he's been a recruiter for a long time. And so the next steps for him once he retires is he wants to, uh, you know, use his skills that he's learned being a recruiter to um, help incarcerated people uh, learn how to build a resume, learn how to interview, learn how to, you know, create opportunity, you know, career opportunities for themselves. Um, maybe even do some education for businesses about like, Hey, incarcerated people are going to be part of the workforce and it's okay to hire them. There shouldn't be as much of a stigma once they get out of prison, um, to not hire them. And that's a real thing. And, uh, it's something that my dad's passionate about. And I really admire that about him, that he's focusing on what's local and something that's personal to him as far as finding jobs for people who are really at a disadvantage coming out of prison. Um, And he's spent time talking to some people uh, in our area. So stuff like that. If there's something that you're passionate about, pursue it where it is nearest to you. Um, And I I do think that helps. I think it's worth doing. So.
0: And for the last question, which is, this is the question I'm most interested in how people answer. Um, And it's just, very directly, are you hopeful?
1: <laughs> I I am. Um, and I say that, I guess, cautiously, but that is kind of the type of attitude I try to have about the world. And um, I try not to be too fatalistic. I mean, I think we're very adaptable people. And I do have hope that things are going to get Better, I think there's a lot of energy right now, but these institutions are, they have deep roots um, and they're not going to topple or change fundamentally very easily. And, you know, when it comes to the virus, I certainly have hope that we will have a vaccine um, at some point. And when it comes to racial justice, I I do have hope that things will get better. Um, yeah, I, I have to, frankly. Um, I, it's hard for me because, you know, I listen to people who don't have a lot of hope and who think things are really bad and that they will just stay really bad and it's easy to believe that. But for me personally, if I stay in that headspace too long, then I, I don't think I would do anything. Um, And instead, I want to be a little bit more like my my father, who is trying to help people near him. And I want to find whatever that is for me when I especially when I get out of college and wherever I'll be living. So I think it's important to have some hope that things will get better for people Um, because it's it's going to take a lot of work and it's not going to happen quickly. And certainly this election will not inspire hope, I think for most people, um, no matter which side of the political spectrum you're on, frankly, I, I, don't, I don't think this is an election that will inspire a lot of hope, but um, that's not the end of it, you know, the president isn't, isn't the end of this stuff. So that's what I would say.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, yeah,
1: thank you again for having me on.
0: And then once again, this was A Moment in History, our 32nd interview. Um, I'm Harrison Zyberg, and this was WCCS podcast. And for all the people who listen to this in the next few days, um, thank you for listening. We hope this gives you a new perspective on the year we're all going through. And for any of the people who do listen to this a few years from now, um, I hope this reminds you or tells you a little bit about what it was like to live through the year 2020. So thank you all for listening.